Hello, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Liz Joy. Dr. Joy is Medical Director, Community Health, and an Adjunct Professor of Family and Preventive Medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine. But I can guess you're going to see what we're talking about in a moment because she's President-Elect of the American College of Sports Medicine and President of the Female Athlete Triad Coalition. And today we're going to talk about female athlete health. I want to welcome you, first of all, to the program. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, Dr. Joy, my first question, it must be great. Obviously, you have a passion for sports medicine, and athletics are very important to you, just reading your bio. To be able to participate, care for patients, how important is that to you? Well, I really think that you know my own personal participation in sports and physical activity across my lifespan really has prepared me to care for the athletes that I take care of, whether they're children, recreational athletes, High school athletes, college athletes, elite athletes, you know, I've had the opportunity to participate at almost all of those levels. And so I can really relate to the challenges that those individuals face, you know, physically, mentally, socially, emotionally. And it's almost impossible to divide, you know, some of my personal experiences with my professional activities. Well, you know, I, when I was in college, I remember right about then Title IX was coming through and none of us really understood it or the impact. I was a male athlete playing a college sport and boy, what a difference it has made and what a positive difference, I think, for women's self-image, women's health. And we're now starting to even see it with the women's soccer team. You know, a lot of different places, I would think a lot of young women are really excited about the potential to play sports or at least see role models like that. Well, you know, I don't think girls these days, you know, they don't they don't know about Title IX. You know, as far as they're concerned, sports are as equally accessible to them as they are to, you know, the boys and to the men that uh, are in their, their schools, you know, whether it be elementary school, you know, middle school, high school, or college. The opportunities are, are seamless. And you're right, you know, girls and women benefit from sports participation to the same extent as male athletes, and obviously to limit their participation seems uh, kind of ridiculous in this day and age. Well, here on ReachMD, obviously, we have a physician audience, and one of the things we look at as physicians, I'm sure you do as well, is not just that bubble in time when they might be even elite athletes playing competitively. It's the whole lifespan of having sports be a big part of your life and, and athletics and conditioning. How do you take that into your practice, you know, to kind of stress to the maybe somebody who is has metabolic syndrome, and they're not necessarily working out the way they should to try to encourage them to do some exercise? Well, we have a couple of strategies in the healthcare system where I work. We have integrated into our electronic health record a physical activity vital sign, and physicians, particularly our primary care physicians, you know, are counseled to ask every adult patient at every visit about their physical activity. We ask about days per week, minutes per day, the intensity of their activity. And then based on those responses, we have a drop-down that prompts physicians to counsel them to either start, increase, or maintain their physical activity. So that's a really helpful tool because it kind of serves as a prompt and a guide for physicians to have those conversations about physical activity and exercise with their patients. We've also developed a broader approach, strategy, and tools in something we call our lifestyle and weight management care process model that provides clinicians and their care teams information about how to evaluate, how to prioritize and counsel patients to use evidence-based behavior change strategies to help them focus on 
you know, whatever aspects of lifestyle that may be most important to them. So, for example, your, your patient maybe with metabolic syndrome, you know, maybe what they really want to focus on is their physical activity level. You know, they feel like that's more attainable than making grand changes in their diet. Great. Well, let's start with physical activity and then, you know, maybe six months down the road, you know, we can start to tackle diet. Or maybe they really need to address sleep and stress management before they can even get to changing their physical activity or diet. So our care process model really provides clinicians and their care teams with the information and the tools in order to engage with their patients in that way in a really patient-centered manner. A little bit about female athletes as well I wanted to touch on while we could, and that is what are some of the athletic and unique athletic challenges for the female athlete. And by that, I wanted to start maybe with the female athlete triad and that that whole issue in women who are training particularly hard. Sure. The female athlete triad is a, a term that's used to describe three distinct but interrelated conditions. And those conditions are low energy availability, menstrual dysfunction, and low bone mineral density. And low energy availability can occur whether the patient is kind of inadvertently not meeting their energy requirements, meaning they're not eating enough to support the level of physical activity that they are participating in. But that is probably less likely than the athletes who are, you know, more intentionally restricting their dietary intake and have some form of disordered eating or an eating disorder that leads to this state of low energy availability. And when we talk about low energy availability, it's like availability for what? We often would use that term in the context of reproductive function. And I think the easiest way to describe this, and this is how I describe it to patients and parents, is that if you don't have adequate energy intake, i.e. your diet has insufficient calories, you have low stored energy meaning that you have a low BMI for your height and or age, and you have high energy expenditure, meaning that you're exercising a lot, then all of a sudden you have insufficient energy to support the self. You're not having enough energy to support all the metabolic activities in your body. And if you don't have enough energy to protect the self, then you definitely don't have enough energy to have a baby or to make a baby because... You know, a fetus, you know, as far as the brain is concerned, is kind of like a parasite. It's another energy drain, another energy suck. And so turning off your reproductive capacity, which leads to that menstrual dysfunction, the second component of the female triad, turning off that reproductive capacity is really a protective mechanism. It prevents women and girls from getting pregnant as a strategy to try and prevent further future energy loss. And albeit protective, it has some unintended consequences, and the, the greatest being, you know, results in low estrogen levels and other hormonal perturbations, which lead to, often combined with, you know, nutritional deficiencies, leads to the third aspect of the female athlete triad, which is low bone mineral density. And when you have female athletes, particularly weight-bearing athletes like runners and basketball players and volleyball players who have that triad of low energy availability, menstrual dysfunction, and low bone mineral density, then they are at risk for stress fractures. And a stress fracture might be kind of one of those nuisance injuries that keeps somebody from training for two to three to four weeks. But of course, we also know that stress fractures can be devastating injuries, like a stress fracture to the femoral neck, 
and other high-risk stress fractures that not only be season-ending injuries for an athlete, but potentially career-ending injuries have, you know, long-term health implications. So, you know, the female athlete triad is something that we definitely should have a high index of suspicion for when we're caring for female athletes, particularly those who screen positive for disordered eating or an eating disorder, and then identifying them and intervening early to try and prevent worse adverse outcomes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, your host. I'm speaking with Dr. Liz Joy with Intermountain Healthcare. She is president-elect of the American College of Sports Medicine, president of the Female Athlete Triad Coalition. What about ACL injuries? We do seem to see an increased number of ACL injuries in female athletes. Is, is there any predisposition or structural reason why that happens? It's really interesting phenomena, you know, the increase in, in ACL injury rates amongst female athletes compared to their male counterparts participating in the same sport. And we see significant differences, you know, three to five-fold differences in female and male soccer players and the same in, in team handball players and amongst basketball players. So these athletes tear their ACL or anterior cruciate ligaments usually through non-contact mechanisms. So Unlike, say, a football player who gets hit by a 250-pound lineman on the side of the knee and tears their ACL, that's not typically what's happening on the soccer pitch or on the court for a basketball player or a team handball player. These are injuries where the, the, the foot is planted and the body rotates, and, and during that process, the ACL is torn. And it's thought that a number of different mechanisms contribute to a higher rate amongst female athletes. Certainly, there are some anatomic differences that probably contribute, and some of those anatomic differences occur in the knee itself with a smaller notch in the femur where the ACL tends to run, and that smaller notch results in less space around the ACL, so it's more likely in that twisting situation to kind of be subject to those shear forces within the femoral notch itself. There are also anatomic differences in the pelvis as well as as its articulation between the femur and the acetabulum of the pelvis. And the wider pelvis increases what's called the Q angle. It puts the knee in a more vulnerable position with knee valgus. And that also is a predisposing factor to ACL injuries. And women also compared to their male counterparts They tend to have weaker hip external rotators and hip abductors. And as such, particularly when they're landing, say, for example, a female basketball player who's rebounding a ball, when she lands and if she has relative weakness in her abductors and external rotators of the hip, again, her knee is more susceptible to valgus. And it's that valgus stress that can result in tearing of the anterior cruciate ligament. Last but not least, is also some hormonal factors. And, you know, there's been some, quite a bit of research actually looking at some of the reproductive hormones and whether or not during certain phases of the menstrual cycle that females may be at greater risk for ACL injury. So lots of different factors contributing to a higher rate. I only have about a minute or so in the program. I wanted to ask you, are there things, especially as somebody as president of American College of Sports Medicine, things that we should think of as primary care doctors worrying about our patients who might, maybe not even elite athletes, certainly just athletes, about trying to help them 
as they age to stay active and suggestions you have? I'd start long before the aging athlete. And, you know, when we look at where can we have the biggest public health impact, and that's to get everybody moving more. And, you know, our Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, just had his first call to action on walking and walkability and and really trying to, to move America. And we need to start in childhood, push hard during adolescence. That's when females really kind of fall off that activity cliff. And they go from, you know, meeting recommended levels of physical activity to having a substantial decrease in physical activity. And, and then that, of course, sets them up for low physical activity levels as adulthood. And when they get really busy with jobs and families and kids and trying to balance all of that, if they're not active as adolescents and young adults, boy, it gets a lot harder in middle age. And then all of a sudden you're old and you've not done anything. And so as physicians, I think we need to be real advocates and really emphasize the importance of an active lifestyle across the lifespan. And we'll do our patients a lot of good if we can support them in those efforts. Well, Dr. Liz Joy, we've run out of time. I really want to thank you for joining us and also sharing your insights on primary care today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This is Dr. Brian Maitana. If you missed any or part of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash primary care today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more on the series. Thank you for listening.